This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit our website at LibriVox.org. Recorded by Max Porter Zasada, The Young Man. The History of Henry Esmond Esquire by William Makepeace Thackeray. Book Two, Chapter Two. I come to the end of my captivity, but not of my trouble. Among the company which came to visit the two officers was an old acquaintance of Harry Esmond, that gentleman of the guards, namely, who had been so kind to Harry when Captain Westbury's troop had been quartered at Castlewood more than seven years before. Dick the Scholar was no longer Dick the Trooper now, but Captain Steele of Lucas's Fusiliers, and secretary to my lord Cutts, that famous officer of King William's, the bravest and most beloved man of the English army. The two jolly prisoners had been drinking with a party of friends, for our cellar and that of the keepers of Newgate, too, were supplied with endless hampers of burgundy and champagne that the friends of the colonel sent in, and Harry, having no wish for their drink or their conversation, being too feeble in health for the one and too sad in spirits for the other, was sitting apart in his little room, reading such books as he had, one evening, when honest Colonel Westbury, flushed with liquor, and always good-humoured in and out of his cups, came laughing into Harry's closet, and said, Ho, oh, young Killjoy, there's a friend come to see thee. He'll pray with thee, or he'll drink with thee, or he'll drink and pray turn about. Dick, my Christian hero, here's the little scholar of Castlewood. Dick came up and kissed Esmond on both cheeks, imparting a strong perfume of burnt sack, along with his caress to the young man. What, is this a little man who used to talk Latin and fetch our bowls? How tall thou art grown! I protest I should have known thee anywhere. And so you have turned ruffian and fighter, and wanted to measure swords with Mohun, did you? I protest that Mohun said at the guard dinner yesterday, where there was a pretty company of us, that the young fellow wanted to fight him, and was the better man of the two. I wish we could have tried and proved it, Mr. Steele, says Esmond thinking of his dead benefactor and his eyes filling with tears. With the exception of that one cruel letter he had had from his mistress, Mr. Esmond heard nothing from her, and she seemed determined to execute her resolve of parting from him and disowning him. But he had news of her, such as it was, which Mr. Steele assiduously brought him from the princes and princesses' court, where our honest captain had been advanced to the post of gentleman-waiter. When off duty there, Captain Dick often came to console his friends in captivity, a good nature and a friendly disposition towards all who were in ill fortune, no doubt prompting him to make his visits, and good fellowship and good wine to prolong them. Faith, says Westbury, the little scholar was the first to begin the quarrel, I mind me of it now, at Lockett's. I always hated that fellow Mohan. Where what was the real cause of the quarrel betwixt him and poor Frank? I would wager twas a woman. Twas a quarrel about play. On oh, my word about play, Harry said. My poor lord lost great sums to his guests at Castlewood. Angry words passed between them, and though Lord Castlewood was the kindest and most pliable soul alive, his spirit was very high, and hence that meeting which has brought us all here, says Mr. Esmond, resolved never to acknowledge that there had ever been any other cause but cards for the duel. I do not like to use bad words of a nobleman, says Westbury. But if my lord Mohun were a commoner, I would say, "'Twas a pity he was not hanged. 
and he was familiar with dice and women at a time other boys are at school being birched. He was as wicked as the oldest rake. Years ere he had done growing, and handled a sword and a foil and a bloody one, too, before he ever used a razor. He held poor Will Mountford in talk that night, when bloody Dick Hill ran him through. He will come to a bad end, will that young lord, and no end is bad enough for him, says honest Mr. Westbury, whose prophecy was fulfilled twelve years after, upon that fatal day when Mohun fell, dragging down one of the bravest and greatest gentlemen in England in his fall. From Mr. Steele, then, who brought the public rumor, as well as his own private intelligence, Esmond learned the movements of his unfortunate mistress. Steele's heart was a very inflammable composition, and the gentleman usher spoke in terms of boundless admiration both of the widow, that most beautiful woman, as he said, and of her daughter, who in the captain's eyes was a still greater paragon. If the pale widow, whom Captain Richard in his poetic rapture compared to a Niobe in tears, to a Sigismunda, to a weeping Belvedere, was an object the most lovely and pathetic which his eyes had ever beheld, or for which his heart had ever melted. Even her ripened perfections and beauty were as nothing, compared to the promise of that extreme loveliness which the good captain saw in her daughter. It was the matra pulcra filia pucrior. Steele composed sonnets whilst he was on duty in his prince's antechamber to the maternal and filial charms. He would speak for hours about them to Henry Esmond, and indeed, he could have chosen few subjects more likely to interest the unhappy young man, whose heart was now, as always, devoted to these ladies, and who was thankful to all who loved them, or praised them, or wished them well. Not that his fidelity was recompensed by any answering kindness, or show of relenting even, on the part of a mistress obdurate now after ten years of love and benefactions. The poor young man getting no answer, save tushers to that letter which he had written, and being too proud to write more, opened a part of his heart to Steele, to whom no man, when unhappy, could find a kinder hearer or more friendly emissary, described in words which were no doubt pathetic, for they came emo pectore and caused honest Dick to weep plentifully. His youth, his constancy, his fond devotion to that household which had reared him, his affection, how earned and how tenderly requited until but yesterday, and, as far as he might, the circumstances and causes for which that sad quarrel had made of Esmond a prisoner under sentence, a widow and orphans of those whom in life he held dearest. In terms that might well move a harder-hearted man than young Esmond's confidant, for indeed the speaker's own heart was half broke as he uttered them, he described a part of what had taken place in that only sad interview which his mistress had granted him, how she had left him with anger and almost imprecation, whose words and thoughts had until then been only blessing and kindness, how she had accused him of the guilt of that blood in exchange for which he had cheerfully has sacrificed his own. Indeed, in this the Lord Mohun, the Ward Warwick, and all the gentlemen engaged, as well as the common rumor out of doors still told him, bore out the luckless young man, and with all his heart and tears he besought Mr. Steele to inform his mistress of her kinsman's unhappiness, and to deprecate that cruel anger she showed him. Half frantic with grief at the injustice done him, and contrasting it with a thousand soft recollections of love and confidence gone by, that made his present misery inexpressibly more bitter, 
the poor wretch passed many a lonely day and wakeful night in a kind of powerless despair and rage against his iniquitous fortune it was the softest hand that struck him the gentlest and most compassionate nature that persecuted him i would as lief he said have pleaded guilty to the murder and have suffered for it like any other felon as have to endure the torture to which my mistress subjects me although the recital of esmond's story and his passionate appeals and remonstrances do so many tears from dick who heard them they had no effect upon the person whom they were designed to move esmond's ambassador came back from the mission with which the poor young gentleman had charged him with a sad blank face and a shake of the head which told that there was no hope for the prisoner and scarce a wretched culprit in that prison of newgate ordered for execution and trembling for a reprieve felt more cast down than mr esmond innocent and condemned as had been arranged between the prisoner and his counsel in their consultations mr steele had gone to the dowager's house in chelsea where it has been said the widow and her orphans were had seen my lady viscountess and pleaded the cause of her unfortunate kinsman and i think i spoke well my poor boy says mr steele for who would not speak well in such a cause and before so beautiful a judge i did not see the lovely beatrix sure her famous namesake of florence was never half so beautiful only the young viscount in the room with the lord churchill my lord of marlborough's eldest son but these young gentlemen went off to the garden i could see them from the window tilting at each other with poles in a mimic tournament grief touches the young but lightly and i remember that i beat a drum at the coffin of my own father my lady viscountess looked out at the two boys at their game and said you see sir children are taught to use weapons of death as toys and to make a sport of murder and as she spoke she looked so lovely and stood there in herself so sad and beautiful an instance of that doctrine whereof i am a humble preacher that had I not dedicated my little volume of the Christian hero, I perceive, Harry, thou hast not cut the leaves of it. Sermon is good, believe me, though the preacher's life may not answer it. I say, cut the leaves of it. Uh, I say, hadn't I dedicated the volume to Lord Cutts, I would have asked permission to place her ladyship's name on the first page. I think I never saw such a beautiful violet as that of her eyes, Harry. Her complexion is of the pink of the blush rose. She hath an exquisite turned wrist and dimpled head, and I make no doubt. Did you come to tell me about the dimples on my lady's hand? Broke out Mr. Esmond sadly. A lovely creature in affliction always seems doubly beautiful to me, says the poor captain, who indeed was but too often in a state to see double. And so checked, he resumed the interrupted thread of his story. As I spoke my business, Mr. Still said, and narrated to your mistress what all the world knows, and the other side hath been eager to acknowledge, that you had tried to put yourself between the two lords, and to take your patron's quarrel to your own point, I recounted the general praises of your gallantry, besides my lord Mohun's particular testimony to it. I thought the widow listened with some interest, and her eyes, I have never seen such a violet Harry, looked up at mine once or twice, but after i had spoken on this theme for a while she suddenly broke away with a cry of grief i would to god sir she said i had never heard that word gallantry which you use or known the meaning of it my lord might have been here but for that my home might be happy my poor boy have a father 
it was what you gentlemen call gallantry, came into my home and drove my husband on to the cruel sword that killed him. You should not speak the word to a Christian woman, sir, a poor widowed mother of orphans, whose home was happy until the world came into it, the wicked godless world that takes the blood of the innocent and lets the guilty go free. As the afflicted lady spoke in this strain, sir, Mr. Steele continued, it seemed as if indignation moved her, even more than grief. Compensation, she went on passionately, her cheeks and eyes kindling. What compensation does your world give the widow for her husband, and the children for the murderer of their father? The wretch who did the deed has not even a punishment. Conscience. What conscience has he who can enter the house of a friend, whisper falsehood and insult to a woman that never harmed him, and stab the kind heart that trusted him? My lord, my lord wretches, my lord villains, my lord murderers peers meet to try him, and they dismiss him with a word or two of reproof, and send him into the world again to pursue women with lust and falsehood, and to murder unsuspecting guests that harbor him. That day, my lord, my lord murderer, I will never name him, was let loose. A woman was executed at Tyburn for stealing in a shop. But a man may rob another of his life, or a lady of her honor, and shall pay no penalty. I take my child, run to the throne, and on my knees ask for justice, and the king refuses me. The king! He is no king of mine. He shall never be. He, too, robbed the throne from the king his father, the true king, and he has gone unpunished, as the great do. I then thought to speak for you, Mr. Steele continued, and I interposed by saying, There was one, madam, who, at least, would have put his own breast between your husband's and my lord Mohun's sword. Your poor young kinsman, Harry Esmond, hath told me that he tried to draw the quarrel on himself. Are you come from him? asked the lady. So Mr. Steele went on, rising up with a great severity and stateliness. I thought you had come from the princess. I saw Mr. Esmond in his prison and bade him farewell. He brought misery into my house. He never should have entered it. Madam, madam, he's not to blame, I interposed, continued Mr. Steele. Do I blame him to you, sir? asked the widow. If tis he who sent you, say that I have taken counsel, where, she spoke with a very pallid cheek now and a break in her voice, where all who ask may have it, and that it bids me depart from him, and to see him no more. We met in prison for the last time at least for years to come. It may be in years hence, when when our knees and our tears and our contrition have changed our sinful hearts, sir, and wrought our pardon, we may meet again, but not now. After what has passed, I could not bear to see him. I wish him well, sir, but I wish him farewell, too. And if he has that, that, that regard towards us, which he speaks of, I beseech him to prove it by obeying me in this. I shall break the young man's heart, madam, by this hard sentence, Mr. Steele said. The lady shook her head, continued my kind scholar. The hearts of a young men, Mr. Steele, are not so made, she said. Mr. Esmond will find other, other friends. The mistress of this house has relented very much toward the late lord's son, she added with a blush, and has promised me that she will care for his fortune. 
whilst I live in it, after the horrid, horrid deed which has passed, Castlewood must never be a home to him, never. Nor would I have him write to me, except, no, I would have him never write to me, nor see him more. Give him, if you will, my parting, hush, not a word of this before my daughter. Here the fair Beatrix entered from the river, with her cheeks flushing with health, and looking only the more lovely and fresh for the morning habiliments which she wore, and my lady Viscountess said, Beatrix, this is Mr. Steele, gentleman usher to the Prince's Highness. When does your new comedy appear, Mr. Steele? I hope thou wilt be out of prison for the first night, Harry. The sentimental captain concluded his sad tale, saying, The beauty of Philia Pucrior drove pulchrum matrum out of my head. And yet, as I came down the river, and thought about the pair, the pallid dignity and exquisite grace of the matron had the uppermost, and I thought her even more noble than the virgin. The party of prisoners lived very well in Newgate, and with comforts very different to those which were awarded to the poor wretches there, his insensibility to their misery, their gaiety still more frightful, their curses and blasphemy, hath struck with a kind of shame since, as proving how selfish during his imprisonment, his own particular grief was, and how entirely the thoughts of it absorbed him. If the three gentlemen lived well under the care of the warden of Newgate, it was because they paid well, and indeed the cost of the dearest ordinary or the grandest tavern in London could not have furnished a longer reckoning than our host of the Handcuff Inn, as Colonel Westbury called it. Our rooms were the three in the gate over Newgate. On the second story, looking up Newgate Street, toward Cheapside and Paul's Church. And we had leave to walk on the roof, and could see thence Smithfield and Bluecoat Boys School, Gardens and the Chartres, where, as Harry Esmond remembered, Dick the Scholar and his friend Tom Tusher had had their schooling. Harry could never have paid his share of that prodigious heavy reckoning which my landlord brought to his guests once a week. For he had but three pieces in his pockets that fatal night before the duel, when the gentlemen were at cards, and offered to play five. But while he was yet ill at the gatehouse, after Lady Castlewood had visited him there, and before his trial, there came one in an orange tawny coat and blue lace, the livery which the Esmonds always wore, and brought a sealed packet for Mr. Esmond, which contained twenty guineas, and a note saying that a council had been appointed for him, and that more money would be forthcoming whenever he needed it. "'Twas a queer letter from the scholar, as she was, or as she called herself, the Dowager Viscountess Castlewood, written in the strange barbarous French, which she and many other fine ladies of that time, witness her grace of Portsmouth, employed. Indeed, spelling was not an article of general commodity in the world then, and, as my lord Marlborough's letters can show, that he, for one, had but a little share of this part of grammar. Mong Cousin my lady Viscountess Dowager wrote, Jusque que vous êtes bravement battu et grivement blessé du coste de feu M. le Vicomte, Monsieur le Vicomte. Monsieur le Comte de Verric ne se plaît qu'à parler de vous. Monsieur de Moon aussi. Il dit que vous avez voulu Vous bastre avec eux, lui, l'oeil. Que vous estes, que vous estes plus fort 
que lui fait les escrimes, que lui a surtout certaines bottes que vous savez qu'il n'a jamais scoparié, et que sans eux être fait de lui, si vous le suivez, vous 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 siez battus ensemble. Ainsi, ce pauvre, ce pauvre vicomte est mort. Mort et ponté. Mon cousin, mon cousin, j'ai dans la tête que vous n'êtes qu'un petit monstre. Ainsi que les aisements ont toujours reste. La veuve est chez moi. Moi. J'ai recueilli ces pauvres femmes. Elle est furieuse comme vous. Allant tous les jours chercher le roi d'ici, demandant à grand cru revanche pour son mari. Elle ne veut voir ni entendre parler de vous. Pourtant, elle ne fait qu'en parler mille fois par jour. Quand vous serez hors prison, venez me voir. J'aurai soin de vous. Si cette petite prude veut se défaire de son petit monstre, elle est, je crains, qu'ils ne sont trop tard. Je m'en chargerai. J'ai encore quelques entrées et quelques escous de côté. La veuve sort commande avec Milady, Marlborough, qui est tout puissante avec la reine Anne. Ces dames, s'intéressant euh, pour la petite prude, qui pour, pourtant a un fille de mesme, Axe, que vous savez. En sortant de prison, venez ici. Je ne puis vous recevoir chez moi à cause des méchantes du monde. Mais près du moins vous aurez logement. Isabelle, Vicomtesse Desmond. Marchioness of Esmond, this lady sometimes called herself, in virtue of that patent which had been given by the late King James to Harry Esmond's father, and in this state she had her train carried by a knight's wife, a cup and cover of assay to drink from, and fringed cloth. He who was of the same age as little Francis, whom we shall henceforth call Viscount Castlewood here, was H.R.H., the Prince of Wales, born in the same year and month with Frank, and just proclaimed at St. Germain, King of Great Britain, France, and Ireland. End of Book 2, Chapter 2